I first met Hugh through his uh, writing, actually. A friend of mine uh, recommended the Silo series, and um, immediately when I got into it, um, we actually have the, the first book of the Silo series here, Wool. Um, I realized it was a completely fresh look at the apocalypse. Um, that uh, it's pretty rare that I get surprised by an apocalypse story. Um, but uh, we, uh, we then came to meet him. I think uh, Stuart Brand met Hugh up at uh, an event that Jeff Bezos was doing, uh, a campfire event, right? And so we got this conversation going. And, and as we were starting this library here for, uh, for the interval, this is called the Manual for Civilization, which is uh, so far the first 1,200 books that we've selected uh, that uh, you would most want to restart civilization. And uh, for those of you who've read the Silo series, uh, you'll know that it has a, a, a kind of a, a perfect place in that space. And when, we, when I finally got to meet Hugh, he was very nice and had a, an edition one of one made of the whole Silo series uh, for the library, which we have up here we actually keep on the shelf that nobody gets I, I to touch. I thought you'd already lost them. I was oh, like, there, no. you, you, think, you think print's going to last forever? And I'm like, they're already gone. Yes. No, they're right there. Um, so when, uh, when I, I found out that he was coming to town, um, I really wanted him to give a talk. And uh, surprisingly, he wanted to give a talk on the, the impermanence of books. Um, and or the, or the, and the, the permanence, permanence of, of digital, digital maybe. Um, which is a, a topic that we have played around with since 1998 with Long Now, um, but really looking at it from the other side. And, and a lot of our preconceptions were coming from the early days of digital, and, and digital has changed a lot. And um, he has been at the forefront of the modern digital uh, publishing. He was kind of the first uh, star that came out of a, a digital-only publishing model. But not the biggest star. The biggest star of that age is in the audience. It's uh, Andy Weir. If y'all haven't read The Martian, <laughs> yeah, please read The Martian before the movie comes out so you can be that hipster. And then when the movie comes out, take the whole family because he only probably only gets like 1.5% of gross. <laughs> and so we need like a lot of people to go so that he's, he can buy rounds for everybody next time he's here. Yes, Andy's been... Andy's been nice enough to also agree to a talk. He'll be coming up here in the fall. So, Andy, did you uh, get three percent? Did you get three percent? No. I oh. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be negotiating the percentage for the talk later. Um, so, uh, when uh, when Hugh suggested this talk, um, it immediately kind of rose my hackles, and then I also. Um, Realize that some of my preconceptions that I've been holding on to around digital data since the 90s are actually wrong. And so it was a good chance for, uh, for us to, uh, to, to rethink that. And so um, he put together this talk just for us and also just for him, uh, the power supply for the chalkboard robot died halfway through the drawing. So the, the, uh, the discussion of how... But the digital still exists. The, the digital, digital still is exists, still on the hard drive. To his point. But the physical yes. has been ruined. Right, so uh, first point goes to Hugh. <laughs> Hugh. The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. All right, 
Um, I, I, love the I love the title of my talk because I'm an author and I'm in a place called The Interval. So we're going to talk about words and time. Uh, I'm also going to expand on how I met uh, Stuart really quickly. Um, I was going to an event and they tell you who's going to be there. And, and I, it's, it's a who's who of all these awesome people. And, and my, my uh, ex-girlfriend could tell you that the person I freaked out about was like, oh my God, Stuart Brand is going to be at this event. I've got to meet him. And I get to the event, and a friend of mine comes up to me and says, I've got a fan who really wants to meet you. And I'm thinking, like, not now. I'm, I'm looking for Stuart Brand. <laughs> and the fan that he brings to me is Stuart. And, like, and, and he comes, he's, like, you know, like, just like, uh, you know, he's always all smiles and, and bouncing like a 12-year-old. And, and we just fanboy about each other's work. So that's, how, that's why I'm here. Um, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's been such a great friendship for the, uh, I don't know, one year that we've had it. Um, so I'm excited to be here. I'm going to talk about what I call the library that lasts. Uh, I think there's a moral imperative to this. And, um, but first, my, my publishing career uh, has always been thinking about time and books because when I first started, I was so impatient because of the uh, advantages of digital publishing. Um, I wanted things done immediately, and I worked with a small press, and things were going very slow. So the reason I started self-publishing was because I knew I could do it myself and do it uh, very quickly. Um, so uh, now uh, I'm much more patient, and I was very patient by the time my second book came out. Because what I realized was uh, I'm not going to be on Oprah with my first book. Um, I wasn't going to make a lot of money, but it didn't matter. The fact that no one was discovering my book meant that it was brand new. It could sit there forever uh, online. And this gave me the, the courage to write another book, even though my, my, second, my first and second book weren't selling that much. Um, uh, the reason this is, is like even print-on-demand books, which are digital because they're PDFs, um, uh, are, don't go out of print. You know, it used to be after six months, if you're not selling well, they would take your books off the shelf and go burn them, uh, later pulp them. But it really was someone's job to take unopened boxes of books and throw them in a furnace for a while. Um, uh, and with e-books, of course, they, they're going to be around as long as Amazon's around, which... Um, will probably be around uh, Steve, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos plus 10. You know, that's about how long it takes for the next guy to run a company under the ground. Um, I set a really, that's funny, I set a long-term goal. You can't say that in the interval when you're talking 10 years. Like, people laugh because that's a sneeze. But <clears throat> for writing, I set a long-term goal of 10 years. I was going to write two novels a year for 10 years and before I even assessed my career. That's the kind of patience I was looking at. Um, Andy's freaking out because Andy writes one book in 10 years. <clears throat> um, you bastard. Like, what are you doing here? You should be at home writing. I want the next book. Uh, uh, another thing I was inspired by, now, it's really hard to write in obscurity. I think Andy can attest to this. Uh, I'm, I'm, well, everybody except these two guys who have been famous since they started writing a, a magazine a couple of years ago. Um, uh, it's really difficult to write every day with no one reading your stuff or giving you any kudos. So I started thinking really long-term, and I would lie to myself and say that I'm going to be the next Philip K. Dick, and no one's going to have heard of me until I'm dead. And then, like, a thousand years from now, they're going to make a movie out of everything that I wrote. <laughs> now, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if this is actually true or not. What matters is that you can fool yourself into getting up and writing every day because there's the chance that you could be discovered. This, wasn't, this is a very serious thing for writers to consider because this was not true uh, 10 years ago, you know, five years before I started writing, if I didn't make it, no one was going to look in my drawer and find a manuscript and have it discovered. Now, all these undiscovered authors and, and nonfiction fiction bloggers, their content is there. A lot of it's going to be discovered after they're dead because this is a new transition. We, I, I know authors that have already given up on writing 
only to have their book hit a bestseller list afterward and then get back into writing. That's unheard of, but it's already happening. Um, I'm going to uh, talk about problems with paper. Um, so I met Stuart, and I, th I think you were the first one who told were you the one who told me about the book? You wanted a copy of Wool, or? Yeah. Okay, so they're gonna, they're gonna make this book safe. I thought they'd already lost it. I think they put it up there because they know it's a one of one, and so it's probably worth at least the cover price. Um, <laughs> so we're, we're gonna, these books are gonna last 10,000 years. I come into the interval a year ago, and I'm like, okay, so you put my book on the San Andreas fault line at sea level, and you have Molotov cocktails hanging from the ceiling, <laughs> like, Whose who's really shitty idea was this for making these books last? And meanwhile, like I come in and the book's on like a lower shelf over there and like people are thumbing through it and spilling bourbon on it. And I'm like, that, that's where this talk has come from, <laughs> seeing this. Um, we do suffer from survivor bias with, with everything that lasts archaeologically. Like we think people used stone tools. They used wood tools. We just don't see them anymore. Uh, we, we write a narrative of what's left over. So... There's all these Greek philosophers that we only know their name because some other philosopher name-dropped them. You know, like, I was hanging out with so-and-so at the... So we know that guy was cooler than him, and we don't have his work. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls are an example. You know, that was a very literate religion, and it was a very dry climate, and so we assume things are going to last. Um, I don't know that they are. The quality of paper is actually going down, not up. They used to put a lot of care into paper. It was more like canvases than what we have now. Um, I think the best example of this is the Penguin Classics collection. You can buy, you can go on Amazon and buy the, all of them in one fell swoop and they come in a truck on pallets. Um, these, the paper has acid in it and someone who knows what they're, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, the, the quality sucks. And someone computed how long it would take to read the entire set of books. If you ordered these and started reading, even if you had several people helping you, by the time you get to the last one, it's, it's illegible because of the acid in the paper. So that's how long that's going to last. Um, all the Penguin Classics in the world are, are gone pretty soon after we stop printing them. Um, the quality of, of old paper is so good that we can actually read uh, washed ink off of... We found manuscripts that were like washed off the paper and then a new text put on top of it. And we can use um, x-ray crystallography to read the old text. It's pretty amazing. Um, the things that are good for life are really bad for books. Um, if we want books to be around while there's still life around, uh, there's some disagreement there. Okay, now this is, I was going to give the, I was going to give a five minute talk. I was going to get to this point, make this next point, and then I was going to drop the mic and walk out, but I'm going to stay for drinks afterwards. Um, there's, part of the whole argument against digital is that some, that formats change over time and we lose the, the key to unlock those formats. I'll tell you why that's ridiculous later, but, uh, language impermanence is an even worse problem. So uh, this is why I think proprietary format is overblown. This is uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Um, I, I can't read these. Um, oh, you're not seeing it yet. I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong screen. Okay, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Um, if anybody know Old English? I'm sure Cameo does. Yeah, you can read this. Can you, can you read the first line for us? And heard this water on them ilken richa wachienda, and this wachen... You guys all get that? That's impressive. Give him a round of applause. So, and, unless, and, unless we keep him alive, we're fucked. <laughs> um, so that's Old English. In the middle, we have Middle English, which I, I only know what this means because I, I kind of know uh, what the last one means, which is Shakespearean. That's, let's look at the years of this. This is 600 Common Era, not long ago. 
Let's go 500 years uh, ahead, and we got Middle English, 1100 Common Era, and then Shakespearean, you know, the, uh, uh, Shakespeare's age, which anybody who's been through um, college will tell you that that stuff's not easy to read either, and it's only 500 years old. So every, every 500 years, I mean, these are really tough iterations, and we're talking 10,000 years, so we've got 20 iterations of this. Um, this is a really bad game of Chinese whispers, uh, and it looks like Chinese to me by the time you go through this. So um, we'll talk about why proprietary format is overblown, but how do we deal with this? In 10,000 years, no one can read any of these. And this is only going to, I think, accelerate as languages start talking to each other and as vernacular starts exploding with technology. Um, all the popular culture references in here will just be gibberish, like anyone uh, who reads Shakespeare and is trying to get the, the uh, contemporary jokes. So that's a huge problem. That's language and permanence. I could walk out right now and I've won. You know, I'm going to give myself a point. <laughs> I'm being objective about this, too. Um, other uses for books, uh, for paper. So this is another biggie. Everyone's familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a, it's a pyramid, so start at the bottom. Those are your base needs to keep you alive. The first two, really, are about staying alive. The next two are about staying sane. And the last one is uh, enlightenment. Um, now let's look at if Maslow did a hierarchy of books, okay? This is what books are good for uh, in this first stage. And this is what they were doing with the Dead Sea Scrolls when we discovered them. They were pulling them out of an urn and they're like, that looks like it would make good tinder. And they were burning them in fireplaces for heat. Uh, it took, um, I don't even know who the scholar who, re or someone realized this might be important and took it to a scholar. They were selling them somewhere else and making money on the open market, and then somebody came in and said, this, this shit might be important. Um, so this is what people are going to be doing with books while we're suffering the digital dark age that we're all scared of. Uh, personal security, that's, books are going to be burned. This is all safety. Oh, now, why, why these two? This is actually worse, because down here, you've got people burning uh, just because they need fire. Up here, and, and they'll burn books if they find them. Up here, you've got... Uh, fanaticism and religion, and you've got intolerance. Uh, you've got people trying to feel good about themselves, but they're not yet enlightened. This is when you go look for books to burn them. You know, like, where are the books stored? Um, where we're going to... Uh, I, I want to actually kind of take you on a little uh, history tour. Um, when I learned that the, uh, that the Egyptian pyramids... You know, there's two places that they put their bodies, the pharaohs. The, the pyramids and the valley of... Two, uh, the the uh, valley of the dead or whatever it's called. The Valley of Kings. Thank you. Um, it's so cool being in a smart audience. I could just have you guys give this talk. Um, I, when I found out that the pyramids came first, that blew my mind. It seemed like the pyramids were an upgrade from just finding a cave or a hole and throwing a body and a bunch of gold in it and then burying it and, and uh, leaving them underground like that. The pyramids seemed like that would come next, right? That's not the way it worked because there was a, a dark age between these two kingdoms and the pyramids were like, hey, there's like really cool shit in here. Um, and that's what's going to happen with libraries uh, when we go through these stages, especially if we put them in mountains with big monuments on top of them like we're discussing here with uh, the Long Now Foundation. Someone's going to find out about this and say, that's too dangerous. They're going to seek it out, and then they're going to use some of your Molotov cocktails. So, um, but but uh, Xander, he made this point when he gave his talk about uh, digital books the best way to save them is to lose them. And, and those are the books that will survive, not my one-of-one one, uh, editions, which is sad. 
Um, and then Kevin uh, Kelly made a point earlier today with me that the, the best storage solution are the uh, landfills where a lot of books are going, mostly uh, E.L. James and um, <laughs> books like that. So when we get to where we are today, we're, uh, and we're only getting close to the stage of enlightenment, people are still burning books for ideological reasons, but we have people like this who have always been ahead of their time. They're preserving books for the first time. So um, we have to get back to this stage before we stop burning them. So that's some other uses for paper. This is another big one. We know this. Libraries don't last. Everyone talks about the Library of Alexandria, even though that story you know, is a little, little different than the version we get. So let's just look at some of what's, what's lost here. 55,000 books and manuscripts. I just, these are some random ones that I've pulled up. 170,000 volumes destroyed. Um, millions of books lost in China in 400 CE. Uh, 8,000 rare books. A lot of these, there were no other copies. These are gone forever. To me, when I was growing up and I, I uh, lost my way with my religion and, and adopted science and wanted knowledge and got into books and I found out about these libraries that were lost, to me, like, this is worse than any loss of human life because um, we're all going to die. But to lose knowledge that we built and, and, and we'll never have again, plays, things like that, was terrifying. The good news is I made all this, sh well, not, I made most of this shit up. Um, yeah, I, I actually just like wrote random stuff. The thing, that I, the, the thing that I kept, though, is what was lost because these are the, the real dates and places. And this is just a, this is just a sampling. These are the ones that we know about. These are in the last few years. And this is what was lost. Um, ISIS is uh, mauling our heritage right now. Uh, books are targets. This is just to drive home that point of what books are going to be good for and that we have to get back to this stage, not where we can turn power on, but where we can open our minds back up. So paper, I don't know, has some disadvantages that we have to think about. Uh, some advantages to digital. You know, these are, everyone knows these. There's a lot, you can make a lot of copies, make them uh, uh, very dense. Um, I think the salvageability is a lot better, and, and I think this will only improve as technology improves. I think we're going to get to the point where, uh, on a nano level, we're going to be able to read magnetic storage that right now we think is lost. One interesting thing to me about looking at digital dark age, um, that's this term for, uh, uh, like, if, if we lost all power or if we lost formats, we wouldn't be able to go back and get that information. Um, I haven't found a case yet where they really, really wanted the data and they weren't able to get it. It's a, it's a matter of patience and cost. Um, this is a big one. This gets to the problem with language that I showed every 500 years. Our translation software is already getting decent, but when it gets great, what I would like to see is a digital library that makes a 100-year iteration of every book. So wool, shift, and dust uh, in the Martian. Every 100 years, this software will say, okay, it's been 100 years since this came out. It does the translation in seconds, it timestamps it, and now you've got it updated for the people of, of that age. And for language buffs, imagine being able to step back through time and read old editions. You go to the oldest edition, and anything you don't understand, you can go to the next oldest one where you understand it to bridge that gap. And you can get as, that gets you as close as possible to the original and will preserve a lot of these languages. Um, and I, I, someone will have to work on this. They might already be doing it. And, and that, that's thinking long-term, because we don't see language changing day-to-day, -day, but it does change, like we just looked at, at that, um, that Bible passage. Um, this is why, this is my favorite point about uh, digital and the fear of these format uh, losses. Um, no one's trying to hide this data. 
the data that we lose because, um, oh, it's saved as a zip file and we don't do zip files anymore. Like, no one was working really hard to make sure we can't write this. And if cryptography was so easy that we could just write it in a format and then, like, kill the guy who did the coding or, or move him to Alaska, then that's how we would do cryptography and no one would ever be able to crack it. Uh, in fact, it's really easy to crack these formats. We just make a big deal out of it because it's annoying. Like anybody who's had to upgrade, like every time uh, Windows 10 just came out uh, today or yesterday or something, and, and they brought the start button back. But when they change something like that, we all wig out. And I'm convinced that this is where the, uh, the move to like preserving paper over digital came because of this annoyance. Like, well, God, if I can't open this file that we had, that we used in accounting three years ago, then we're just totally screwed. Um, and I feel like that's giving up too quickly. There's so many advantages to digital that we can um, uh, innovate and, and make better. Um, my favorite technology out right now for this is uh, MDisk, which they're making for archival purposes, and it's a physical uh, etching. Uh, it's better than the chemical that we use for a CD-R uh, right now. Um, they, they assume a thousand years. It's funny how they have to extrapolate this because it hasn't been around a thousand years. Um, but I, I think that this will improve, and we need to work on a 10K solution for uh, digital archival. And then that opens up all kinds of awesome opportunities. The, the biggest thing about digital, if we, if we preserve this, we're creating a zoo. We're putting uh, individuals in a cage. They can't talk to each other, and they don't interact with each other. Uh, once machine learning comes around and artificial intelligence, and we, get, we feed this digitally into them, that's where our collective intelligence will, will have life. And so by preserving the digital, we preserve an ecosystem. When we preserve print, we preserve uh, individual species. So this is an excellent first step, but it's the first step we took when we created a zoo and we had little cages, and then we learned later that um, books go crazy when they're kept in cages. Books, books uh, thrive when they're uh, shared and when they, when they interact with one another. Um, a couple of things I think that we miss as uh, people who write post-apocalyptic fiction. Uh, we always act like there'll never be any power in these worlds, but the, right now we are covering the world in solid state power generators that will be less efficient, but power will be, you know, I, they'll be able to set up like, um, you know, traps for people and stuff. There'll just be uh, power everywhere. Matter of fact, to, to preserve literature, one of the first things people will realize is if they type in 55378008 into a calculator and turn it upside down, it'll say boobless. Um, and this, this is something that we will always preserve because we'll have enough <laughs> solar-powered calculators. Um, machines, I think, also uh, await the hierarchy of need better. Like a thumb drive just doesn't look very useful uh, to people in going through their primitive stages, not like paper. Um, so there's a chance that, um, and, and this is something that's kind of cool in a lot of post-apocalyptic stuff, where something very important is being used as an adornment, you know, and, and I think that will probably happen with thumb drives. There'll be earrings and things like that that have, like, all of humanity's knowledge in it, and, and meanwhile, these people are, like, banging rocks together. Um, another uh, big point is that uh, by the time we need all this knowledge, by the time we need all of human knowledge, we're going to have a lot of human knowledge. So our recovery ability is going to be great. Our, our knowing what to look for, decoding any kind of primers uh, to understand what's being written. Uh, again, back to the Maslow's hierarchy of books, it's not until you get to self-actualization that someone is saying, I want to know everything that the people in the past knew. And by the time they get there, we can assume they're going to be more advanced than us, I think. Um, what do you think about that? I'll, I'll, I'll oh, you're saving, okay, you're making a list. 
I'm watching that scoreboard. Okay. Um, I, so these are, these are all the considerations that I would put into sitting down and coming up with a, um, a, a lasting digital library um, and, and keep improving this as the tools improve. Um, I think we could build them several machines, hundreds, uh, as, as affordable as possible. If you gave me X number of dollars, this should be the challenge. If you gave me X number of dollars and I had to preserve human knowledge, how many books could I store versus how many, um, and maybe several libraries of books, and how much could I use that same money to build uh, a library that would hold pretty much everything that we've ever had? Uh, one of the problems I have with this solution is that it's heavily curated, and we don't know what's gonna be important. Um, the only reason uh, Andy and I are, are, are uh, authors is because we bypassed the curation machine. We would never have gotten published uh, had we not kind of broken the rules the way we did. So I, I'm sad to think about what's gonna be lost. Um, uh, a lot of books that never have a print edition at all. They're, they're self-published in digital form, and they might be the best thing ever written 500 years from now. And, and if we don't save everything, we'll lose those. Um, these are basic things that, that we're gonna need. You guys have done some of this with the Rosetta project. Um, how to get the stuff out of the machines? I think um, like projection to me is the most obvious to have something that you can read without having to have moving parts, something very robust. Um, but the ability to project, to display on the device, and maybe even to print uh, copies. They have um, this Espresso book machine now. It's about the size of a large printer, and it pops out a fully formed book. Will that survive 10,000 years? Uh, I don't know, but maybe we can look into making it robust enough to survive 1,000, so that as soon as things go to hell, as long as we've kept it maintained, it'll last long enough to, get, to bridge the gap. I think all of this should be open source. I think we should definitely do the timestamp thing. I love that idea. And um, I think it should be crowdsourced. One thing you could do, for instance, with the Long Now Foundation is create a uh, thumb drive that had what you thought was important. Maybe as much of this is in copyright uh, or public domain, I would give you the rights to have my digital edition on there and sell them to people. Make you know, enough to have a profit to support the, the, um, the Long Now Foundation, but then everyone has, you know, then you have tens of thousands of copies of these thumb drives out there, which improves the chances that we find these things. Um, and you can plug it into your computer anytime you want, and it'll do an update, you know, refresh it. Um, I think there's a moral imperative to this. Um, when you look at what, uh, what's important about us is what we've learned over time. None of us import, are really important individually, um, uh, despite uh, what Xander thinks about himself. Um, but our ideas are, we don't want to lose those. They're very important. Um, language is great at preserving ideas. Writing preserves our language so that we can read uh, people's ideas well, well after they're gone. Libraries preserve writing. That's why this is important. You guys know that. Um, I think this is more important than the money we're pumping into seed vaults, which is uh, admirable. But I think language is going to, uh, or nature is going to take care of herself, but that uh, the only one who's going to preserve language, uh, preserve knowledge is us. Um, What's cool is that I'm not the only person thinking about this. People have been thinking about this for uh, over 20 years. Um, and there's all these projects underway. These are just a handful. A lot of money going into this. And so there's a lot of um, uh, duplication. You know, they, th these guys all talk to each other. There's conferences about this and, and how to improve methods. And I guess you guys are going to have your own version at some point, right? Of like a digital we work with the library. Okay. Um,
the last thing I'll say, I won't say that Xander's wrong about any of this, and I'm really honored to have my books up there, and if I was investing in something this important, I would, um, I would definitely diversify my portfolio. There's pros and cons to both. I think they're gonna augment each other. Uh, I think when they get to 3,500 and start replacing books, mine will probably be the first ones to go. Um, and I, uh, yeah, I, I'm more optimistic probably than most. I think if we do lose power, it won't be for long. This was cruel. This was, Xander slipped this in on me. And I, it's pretty clever, so I'll give him a point for that. Oh, look at that. So, there you go. You get a full point. Yeah, so I, I, love, that, I love that the chalk, the chalk drawer died. That was uh, excellent. I sabotaged that. So that's, um, that's, why, that's why I think digital has uh, advantages that um, print doesn't. I'd love to hear Xander's uh, rejoinder. And then we'll do some Q&A with the rest of you guys. And if you want to, if, thank you. Wow, it's, it's 8 o'clock exactly. I was trying to sneak that in at 30 minutes. But I know everyone here I talked to before the talk was interested in talking about anything but this. So we can take some Yeah, no, we've, we've tricked people into talking about digital preservation um, who all came here Good. to ask you questions about the apocalypse. So, um, so we will do questions about the apocalypse shortly. Um, don't worry. Uh, but we're going to just, um, I think, just flesh out a couple of these ideas. Because I do think that, you know, at the when, as, as I mentioned back in 98, when we really started thinking about digital preservation, we were looking at digital... The, the digital history up to that point, which um, was rough, was very rough. And, and as uh, as you know, there's the you know that the original tapes from the Apollo uh, landing, which were saved by like accident after accident after accident. There was one woman who kept them in a McDonald's on the yeah. base, and if she hadn't done that and then gone through painstaking work to get is that, them, is that a digital copy or is that a physical copy? Though they were digital. No, but it's not. It's, it, yeah, but, well. When, yeah, so that's the, an interesting question. Is yeah. It, it's, yeah, so, and this is the problem that, that plagues the early well, like Star digital Wars. time. Yes. Like we, I don't think we'll ever have a Blu-ray of the original Star Wars films because Lucas raped the original by adding a bunch of digital monsters, and they did it on the, on the celluloid. They painted, they painted it on the physical thing, uh, and so that's gone, and it's a, kind of a physical loss. If we had digitized it before, they had, before Lucas raped it, then... Um, yeah. Doctor uh, Who's another one, or...? Are gone. What's the What's the Doctor Who story? They, 108 episodes were lost, and they were because and, they were on film. And too bad we can't right? do that with Friends. Yeah. So there, I mean, we do have stories where there's the where the physical media got lost, and so there was this time before where before storage was free. Yeah. Which it is now. So as long as we call that free, right? So. Um, and, and I'm not sure I want to call that free yet, but I think that, you know, now we have a, at least we live in an ecosystem where digital is free um, for, for a while. And, to, you know, and then, and then there's, I think there's it's 499 for like 10 terabytes. Right. For yeah. on so it's, Dropbox it's or whatever it is. Definitely way cheaper than printing that at Kinko's. Yeah. Uh, 10 terabytes worth of data. So that's going to be the, I think, the, the question. And I think, you know, Long Now was looking at a lot of those early kind of horror stories and, and even more modern ones, uh, Pixar's Toy, Toy Story 2, um, the digital version, uh, a sysadmin typed RM-R star and uh, wiped out their entire Toy Story 2 right before they finished it. And it was, there was some random backup that they were able to pull back out that saved it. And there's a great 
There's actually a great little animation of that. Is there? Uh, of, the, of that story. That so, was, so they had a free backup. They were just able to like they, create they, a whole they backup of it. They thought it was gone, it. gone. It was, a, it, was an, it was actually a fluke. It was somebody who had put it on their Can't, machine. It was an employee. Yes. Yes. Right. So an illegal employee backup saved Toy Story 2. That, yes. That's why we need to like sell those thumb drives. And I think, right. But it would be so cool to like have a little capsule that you knew was like uh, a copy of everything that we know. And we're not there yet, but like we, we, we tend to take our current technology, and I, I think we have at least maybe 50 years before the world uh, implodes. And in 50 years, if things continue the way they are, storage is going to be uh, ridiculous. What a thumb drive will hold will probably be like the internet. So um, we'll, we'll see. Maybe not, maybe not in 50 years, but... Certainly in 100 or 500. And well, we yeah, I mean, I mean, it could happen kind of for any number of reasons. And I think, but the question of, you know, a complete societal collapse that stops all spinning disks is a pretty big, um, that's, that's a pretty big requirement. How do you see that happening? Because this all presupposes, like, the, the fear that we're going to lose everything digitally means that we lose civilization for a while. I mean, I think the only thing that's on that scale is, is comet impact meteor. or meteor impact. That so we put a copy on the moon. We put a copy on Mars. We leave directions, a big sign, like maybe put it right on the middle of that face on Mars. Which I know it doesn't look like a face from every other angle. And problem solved, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, we sent one of our uh, Rosetta disks on a spacecraft. And you can send them out language, even on like commentary, on commentary uh, uh, you know, trajectory so that they keep revisiting. They keep coming back, yeah. Um, which is a, a certainly another I tactic. Like and those could be digital. And the new, um, the new Horizon spacecraft, they're replacing... Uh, its data banks with messages from Earth, kind okay. of the, the digital version of the Voyager record. So that'll actually be an interesting test. Um, you to know, see if it's still how there. How long can you read the Voyager record versus how long can you read the, the, digital, the digital version, which will have way more data on it, yeah. um, but will be in a digital format. So that's an interesting question. Are there any questions from the audience? Yeah, actually, this is a problem that I think both paper and digital I'm going to repeat the question so people can hear it. So, yeah. yeah. So, um, the problem is you, you don't necessarily need a collapse of civilization, but maybe you just need, at some point in time, people in that civilization simply deem that some material is not worth keeping. And, you know, they just throw it out. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, so I think, and to, to some of the points that we saw earlier, so, you know, when you have the ideological destruction of data, we're actually, I think, vastly more vulnerable to that now than we were, than we are with books, because books actually take a lot of effort to burn, whereas RM-R star, um, you know, at a national library um, could devastate, you know, the, for the same reason you can store that many books in one place, you can also devastate those books yeah. in, the, in a single command. Yeah, so I think uh, we need you know, as many copies as possible in as many places as possible. And, and hide some, lose some, store some, uh, jettison some. I, I, I think that this is like one of the most important things we can do right now is every, I don't know how many years you want to pick, every 20 or 50 years, like encapsulate all that we've learned and put it out there. Right, well, and I think, I mean, even more than the encapsulation, the physical media, I mean, the thing that we did when we did this conference in 1998 um, at the Getty Center on, uh, on digital preservation is there was a whole thing that happened, happened yet, the yeah. internet, basically, right? I mean, there was, there was the beginnings of it, but it wasn't on this scale that it is now where fundamentally, you know, people have normalized all of their data into one format yeah. that fits, that works and is read on the internet. Um, and that's the, 
that's the big paradigm shift is it used to be that there were all these isolated silos of data that were not interconnected. Yeah. And now they are interconnected, at least a lot of the very valuable things. Of course, copyright has kind of broken some of that to a certain extent. I bet Andy so has another, a solution because he, he, can, he can get his guys out of any trouble. I don't know. I've got, I've got a couple of things. First off, talking about the destruction of data being easy, I would disagree. The fact that like every copyright holder has been trying very, very hard to destroy the illegal file sharing yeah. that's been going on pretty much proves that once it gets out there and duplicated, then it's not an issue. And it's, it, you, you, you literally cannot destroy the information. And, and beyond right, that, well, like, so you mean the, the internet like, kind of stops things from being destroyed. But I think that, so that's definitely true of popular, interesting things with a hobby group. It's it, like, but not necessarily, let's say, I mean, the, the one that came up, I think, and it came up in our 1998 conference, and uh, Jared uh, Lanier had an interesting solution. It's the, it's the mundane data. So, you know, it would be really awesome if we had all the accounting of ancient Rome. And we definitely don't have all the accounting from 20 years ago. Um, and so, uh, Jaron Lanier's well, idea... 20 years ago is not as interesting as ancient Rome, anyway. Well, um, it, was it, might the, be it was the early digital history of our planet, right? Yeah. So, and Jaron Lanier's idea was to create AIs to be um, hobby groups for boring things, um, which I thought was an interesting solution. And what was your other point? So the one other thing I was just going to say is an anecdote talking about the uh, destruction of data, like uh, Pixar almost trashing all of Toy Story 2. Uh, we had a similar situation. I used to work for Blizzard Entertainment, and I was one of the programmers on Warcraft 2. And our IT guy accidentally gave one of the um, so uh, software testers access to the entire source repository. And that, that tester accidentally deleted the entire source repository when he was just trying to delete his own local oh. Warcraft 2 directory to reinstall. And he deleted our entire, like, our entire system. We had no backups or anything, but we were able to reconstruct the code just from the engineers' computers, put it all back together. But it was like that close to listening to the entire well, And that's, a, that, that's another well, so, point uh, about digital is that yeah. um, erasing a digital hard drive is not so easy as just hitting delete. Like, uh, if it was, um, to governments wouldn't write random ones and zeros and then put them through a grinder and turn them into dust because if you have the money and the, the uh, you really want it badly, you can get it back. Uh, yeah. Pixar probably had a problem of uh, fidelity. Like they probably could have gotten a lot of the information back, but it wouldn't have been high def information. But getting it back low def is pretty easy, I think. Right, and uh, I think Kimia, yeah, and that's that is the question of how bad do you want it, and then do you, you know, know more as, about the just handcuffs? Can you get like data out of things too? <laughs> You're like a hacker as well. Kimia, so, you had a question. Um, I was going to ask um, your opinions regarding um, this move toward cloud-based machines and how we do everything in the cloud, but we've learned that when we do that, other organizations are managing our data and what versions are acceptable and which ones we should have. And I understand your point regarding everything's easy to have on a flash drive, but I assume that in 100 years, we will entrust companies like Google or Apple with all of our data and just keep it safe for us. And as you also mentioned, this idea of putting a flash drive in the computer and it will helpfully update the latest versions. Well, obviously, I think we can all agree that what we think is the most appropriate thing to be returned to us is not what may be an overlord, but agreement. So do you not, Q, do you not really think that uh, as we go further, that we won't have our own data that we are in charge of, that any time it touches the internet, it is touched back in a way that we don't agree? So, well, yeah, the question is, yeah, does, does the non-open source, does the proprietary format environment that we now live in uh, 
pose a huge danger. Well, I, I hope this project would be uh, an open source and a crowdsourced project, that it wouldn't be something that uh, Google was in charge of, but something that a group like Long Now was in charge of and that individuals were in charge of. Uh, I see this as being um, a, a hobbyist thing and that a lot of people really geek out about um, being a part of the preservation effort. I really think you can get, the, the way you guys have gotten the community involved in a lot of these uh, issues is to turn them onto ideas like this. And by selling you know, the, the FOB or by uh, um, making a physical representation of what you're doing that they can own, then there's a conversation going on. Well, what is that thing that you wear from your ear around your neck or on your keychain? What do you keep on there? Oh, I keep, I keep all of Wikipedia on here. Um, and every now and then I plug it in and it updates with all the new Wikipedia articles. I, I trust organizations like Wikipedia right now, and I think there will always be organizations like that around that we can trust. But uh, yeah, when someone's motto, when a company's motto is don't do evil, I assume they're, they're evil fucks. <laughs> like, don't uh, look over here. Actually, the former CTO of Wikipedia is asking you a question. Oh, I thought you were going to say Google. I was like, fuck. D Denise, you're up. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there are computers, but you have to be kind of special to get into them. And, and the, you know, I mean, the senator guy learns from books. Careful. Spoilers. <laughs> Before he dies. I think that's what I'm saying. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I was just making that up. Yes, yes. Um, after having really weird tendencies towards his sister. But anyway. This is after the vampires. Yeah. 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 I know what you're, I know what you're talking about. But, but can I just say that um, all of this kind of reminds me of Bradbury and people taking on a book. And what I loved about Fahrenheit 451 was it was a human-sized answer. Admittedly not a great scaling answer, but it was under the radar, and there were a lot of things about it hmm. lovely. I don't know about... Right, and, and Neil Gaiman brought this up in his talk of the, the person in the, in the concentration camp who read who memorized a chapter of Gone with the Wind each night and then recited it back during sewing class because uh, they weren't allowed to, to read books. So. Right, and actually, I think there's a, a good point. So, um, as Denise, and this is not giving away anything in the book because you kind of open with this premise, um, is that uh, the servers of the silos were purposefully scrambled and no one knows why. Yeah. So their digital history was erased, is the premise of the book. Um, yet, uh, later on, other types of things are found. Right, but the digital history was erased, but then a good coder knew how to un unerase it, right. that the That's ones true. and zeros are still there. So, I think... But yeah, those paper and you know the paper was um, I don't know artificially limited because it's it's, it's just a really bad storage medium. <laughs> it is. Um, it's nice paper. Any other questions, Andrew? Um, so you keep saying flash drives, but isn't this just like the 2015 version? Of yeah. And you know if we yeah. assume that we're then using humans to bring the hardware forward, then we're assuming continuity. We're assuming continuity. The books were too. Yeah. I, I think, I think uh, he's asking about flash drives and are they, is that going to be a proprietary format or not. I think what we're storing it on will change over time. We're going to update it as we go. Um, the day that we have the apocalypse, then whatever's left, um, by the time they can figure out how to interface it, this is going back to the by the time we need all knowledge, we'll have much knowledge. Uh, they're going to be more advanced than us or as advanced as we are before they need it. And we're pretty clever at getting stuff out. Like, I know this is a paper example, but this is how clever we are. The, the getting the erased manuscript off of a piece of parchment. Um, we're going to have that same ingenuity when we're trying to recover uh, digital. And so I, I don't worry about that. Someone can build a machine. Well, if we can build 
um, a, a thing that will half draw a, hawk, a chalk uh, diagram, you know, we'll be able to interface with the flash drive. What's well, on that? I mean, my understanding is flash drives, they basically, they lose about half their data just by entropy by, per 10 years. There are some, you know, some of the new, uh, some of the technologies that would become More our robust. next flash drives kind of accidentally um, their, their technology is writing kind of holographically the way stone does inside its crystal structure and could accidentally last for millions of years, but it's only, it's, it's a market force that's driving that. So that one may but do we, a lot But we better. don't really know what's, what's possible. We know that right now it erases to the point that we can't read it, but this gets back to the crystallography with the old manuscript. There might be a trace there on a, you know, on a quantum level that we're not even aware of yet. And right. So uh, yeah, and the, I, then the question is, is uh, do we know to read it? And you know, the the you know the Rosetta Stone was found by one of Napoleon's soldiers, and actually knew that it was important because yeah. they could see it. But you know, if you found a broken piece of a DVD, uh, you know, it might be shiny, but would you know there's data on it? Is an interesting. Well, what's your question. rejoinder to the language issue? Because we'll we'll know to read these in ten thousand years, and we won't be able to because he's not going to be here. Right. Well, so, um, yeah, I mean, the language issue is the reason we, the very first long-term storage thing we did was a language key. Right, um, but we don't and, know, I mean, you got to know it, it. No, you know, it includes versions of English as well. From 10,000 years from now. Well, not yet. No, That's impressive. We, we, we still have to, we still have, you know, there's the emoji version comes next. <laughs> um, that we're the writing that speak one and the now. <laughs> uh, Ryan, you had a question? Yeah, I'm just surprised that um, we're, we're talking about drives, digital storage data devices. I'm wondering what the future like. I'm, I'm hoping it's protein or... And I'm sure you've looked at DNA storage. I know yeah. long now look at DNA storage. What's beyond DNA storage and why did you I haven't rolled it. I think that's, that'll be the answer. Like right now, digital is the best thing we have, and in the future, there'll be something better. I love DNA storage and the idea that we could have a library that is growing and renewing itself and multiplying. Uh, but I, uh, no, I, I think a thousand years from now, this is all going to be seem moot. Like, of course, this is how we do it. It's not going to be paper, though. It's going to be whatever comes next. Right. I think and, this, and is George, like, George, this is like George a vinyl put collection. His entire book into the junk DNA, right? Um, and actually, Jaron Lanier, another idea that Jaron Lanier had that he submitted to the, uh, the Save 100 Years of the uh, New York Times project was to put that into the junk DNA of cockroaches and breed them endemically into yeah, the New be York around. population of cockroaches. Uh, which so I you're asking me why great. would someone think to look into a flash drive, but someone's going to think to look in the cockroach DNA. For well, we spend an awful lot of time looking at cockroach DNA. Where's my chalk? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just going to raise your point. Who gets a point on that? I'm taking oh, one you away took from a point you. away. Wow. I'm, I'm down to zero. Yes. Oh, I, I guess I want to get on you's team. What? I, 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 I don't see how... Oh, one advantage I claim digital might have versus a book is a book can't make a copy of itself, nor can it move around or be smart enough to try to mm. infiltrate its, the landscape in which it exists. But if we wanted, and we were happy, good white hat hackers, we could make knowledge move around and hide, whether it's in a flash drive or a DNA drive or whatever comes next. There's actually the possibility for this data to want to serve. I love that idea. Right, so book viruses. But Jeff, Jeff Bezos yeah. is working on making these fly. These are going to be flying to you. Right. Not I think too book long. viruses are a, are a great idea. I love that idea. Anyway, I, I'm a techno dunce. I mean, I do really stupid things on my computer and I can't fix them. You know, like I, the other night I 
I started a, a group discussion with 400 people. <laughs> I'm in on that. Thanks for that email, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I, I don't understand digital. I don't understand any of this stuff, but I, I cannot live without reading. I have to read a book all mm -hmm. the time. I, I read off of a Kindle. I read off of my iPad, which I do own. But I really don't know. I mean, I, I live in terror of these things um, not being I can't charge them. Like, I'm on a camping trip or something, and I lose my books. I, I can't. Right, and I think this, this technophobia is where a lot of the fear of digital data comes from because we, you know, we also have the, are the unfortunate generation that lived through the transition of this. And you know, there's my daughter's generation will just think of it as turning on lights. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the question. And, and fundamentally, Long Now is not against digital data. Um, we're not, we're not you know, this is our first collection of books. Um, but our, our main goal was to kind of call out some of the dangers of, of, of digital. And I think that fundamentally, these are all going to have kind of a, a relay race and marathon race um, kind of characteristic to them, where some things are going to last a long time. And I think that one of the points that you brought up about the gateway factor of print is a huge one. And it came up when we were trying to collect this collection. We were trying to get all the great works of humanity. Plus and, wool. And yeah, even even wool. Um, and um, but when we when you do that, if you look at the last thousand years of literature, there's basically you know no women. There's no there's almost nobody of color. There's so, I mean it's it's so it, that gateway has kept people out of that for so long that there's a new thing that you know minorities or people underrepresented groups their stuff could get found as you yeah. point out um, now in a new way. Yeah, and I'm writing stuff that will probably never be in print. Like I'm writing stuff now that I'm just. Uh, uploading in digital form and there's short stories that will never be in an anthology, never be in a magazine. And fortunately, it'll be lost completely if you're right. But uh, if, if you wanted it saved and you think print's the only way to do it, there's a lot of stories out there now that have no chance because they'll never, they'll never be a physical edition. So uh, if this is important, then let's, let's just engineer solutions. Let's just, you know, not give up on it, I guess. There's the union. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is, uh, I don't know if you, there's a great there service a uh, called, called Pedia Press where you can print out any article in Wikipedia. So this is a two volume set of the nature entry. Really? Um, and so, uh, and there's a, there's a group that's printed this, the whole Wikipedia out like this, right? Um, but uh, we have a few of them here. And, and so what's beautiful about these is that if I printed this today, it's, it's, different. it's a different version. Yeah. Um, but you get to put it up on, up on your shelf. So um, there's actually a bunch of them that are kind of pre-done, but they, they print out beautifully. And you can get them in color or not, or just that you can also just, just get the digital version. Um, so I think we should make a long bet. And it, it can either be about your book or maybe one of these books. Okay. Um, and, which one? Which one will last longer? The digital version. Let's do it um, with the, wool. The, what's that? Let's do it with wool. With wool. Yeah. yeah. Bring that one down to me. I'm gonna start right now. <laughs> <laughs> we have a bunch of copies in the back, so we'll do a couple more questions, and then uh, and then we'll uh, we'll disband, and you can all bring your books up here to get signed, and then and uh, we'll have some drinks, I think. Drink and assault too with more questions. Yes. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about words. But what about pictorial? What about yes. about what? The pictorial. What about artwork? About paintings? Oh, about yeah. tweets? Yeah. About the tactile? Music. Uh, about smell? About the. Uh, some of those are 
accessible or susceptible to digital storage. Yeah. Well, to be fair, his talk started about text, but yes, the I, th I um, think we should store all, all of those things get into those are those are vastly more complex things. You know, when you get into even just a basic program that's not text. Well, I think it's important to digitize those things and to do a a, a scan of the great uh, classic paintings that are, are generating every day, and the scan be so good, like on millimeter waves, that if we recreated it, we would have the texture of every brushstroke of these great masters. Instead, no one's even trying to do this, as far as I know, of getting the depth of the piece as well, instead of just a good print. He's doing it with the, with, that's a smart guy. See, this is an idea I just had off the top of my head. It probably took Bill Gates weeks to come up with that, and it just <laughs> came to me like that. He's been. He's Hold been, on, I just want to get to a few people that haven't had a chance. Thank you. So, so this tie presupposes the value of the totality of information, but uh, some, there's value in, in the, the, the total are you an editor? <laughs> you work at a major publishing house? Or? So, so I'm just saying that you know, if there's some value in scarcity and there's, say, less value than 50% of this information is read in comments at the end of the day, you know, what, what do we do with that? Right. How valuable are the Reddit comments versus uh, the digital volumes getting published? And the 4chan comments, yes. I, I mean, but I think the, I mean, you can go ahead and answer this, but I also think that in the digital world, they're kind of free to store either way. Yeah, right? free to store. Not only that, we, how, how are we going to know? We're, we're, we're stupid compared to people 50 years, 100 years, 500 years from now. Um, I, I'm really lucky, you know, that, that the tastes were where they were for my work to do well, but uh, I could have been the PKD that I dreamed of being uh, in order to get through my writing, where it was going to take a thousand years for people to recognize my genius. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things we came across early on is that librarians routinely um, excise ad pages out of magazines when they store them for archiving. Yeah, which is um, like which is, cool you know, stuff if, to keep. Like, there's nothing cooler than getting a 1972 Playboy and yeah. like, looking at the ads. I, I, that's, that's why, <laughs> no, no, I, I, I subscribe for the ads. Yes, like many of you. All right, well, with that, uh, thank you all for coming. Um, and please grab a book and have him sign it. Thank you very much. Thanks, man. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.